Hello, friends, and welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. My name is Scott Cowan, and I'm the host of the show. Each episode, I have a conversation with an interesting guest who is living in or from Washington State. These are casual conversations with real and interesting people. I think you're going to like the show. So let's jump right in with today's guest. I'm sitting down today with Sam Albright. Uh, Sam lives in Ellensburg. Uh, as those of you who have listened to the show at all know that I went to college in Ellensburg and I have a soft spot for that that town. I found out about Sam. Well, I kind of knew who you were in the sense that the studio. I mean, I, I knew of the studio, but we'll, we'll come to that. But anyway, uh, a mutual friend of ours posted on a uh, an article from the Ellensburg record that you have leased out the studio and you've decided to um, concentrate fully on your creativity. How's that? Well, maybe that's the spin. Well, that's a good, that's a good story. Yeah. Yeah, It's a good story. We'll stick with it for you. Okay. But anyway, uh, and I'm on your website and, you know, and I'm just going to say three words. And then from there, I'm going to ask you to, to elaborate. And I quote a prolific artist. So where do you want to go with that? You're prolific. Where, what do you want to talk about, Sam? How's that sort of well, on the spot? Yeah, that, that's a good, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that kind of leaves it wide yeah. open. Yeah. yeah. Well, those yeah. are the, the people who know me know that. Yeah. I mean, some people have a hard time uh, embracing the term artist or calling themselves that, but I don't have any problem with that. Okay. It's, it's a blessing and a, a curse you know i mean okay. i'm up in the morning and i'm sitting at the kitchen table you know painting you know and i, I yeah. that's what i'm doing right now and it's it's really great i that's oh. uh that's what i'm kind of focusing on now but i can feel the music the sound thing coming back you know i've been, i've been the as covid hit i kind of went visual you know and i mm-hmm. i really didn't play much music and my old hands were getting worn out and I was doing some building projects that, that, uh, weren't good on my bones and, and playing was just harder and harder. So I wasn't able to kind of play at the level that I wanted to play at. Okay. Um, but, uh, once I wasn't building this, this big dodecagon straw bale, uh, building that I've been working on for the last couple of years, uh, the music I feel like is starting to come back. So, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I am prolific. I mean, I, that's kind of what I do. I just, um, I'm, I make things and I'm interested in things and I love paint and it's very similar to sound to me. I mean, paint and sound, they just go together. We use terms that are the same. I mean, we use composition, we use values. We, we, we make, uh, music with different instruments, like different colors in a in a painting. So it it all it all just kind of flows together for me. But I definitely go through different cycles okay. of visual work, and then back to back to uh, uh, making music. So um, so what little background I know about you, and and for your for your clarity, I don't do a lot of research on my guests because I genuinely like to be surprised when they say something. What I do know is you you graduated from Central. You went back to the Seattle area. You had a gallery. 
You came back to Ellensburg. So first off, what, you know, the draw of Ellensburg is real. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's, it's a the hard... vortex. We talk, yeah. it's the Ellensburg vortex. Yeah. Once you're kind of in it, then it's, it's going to, it's going to yeah. suck you right back. You in, just can't you know? escape. I mean, I, yeah. And, and so I don't want to, we'll come back to the, we'll come back to the gallery in Seattle. Let, let me ask you this question. Why did you open a recording studio? Uh, <laughs> well, that was, a, it was after our studio space that had a gallery in Seattle, Blanchard, okay. Blanchard Street Studios. And we, it was uh, maybe 1979 and I had driven across the country with my wife and, and we were looking for graduate schools and we just went, well, uh, Larry Reed just started hired hand gallery down in Pioneer Square. Why don't we just move over to Seattle and and just live in the city, you know, and and make art and just live in a loft and do the whole thing, you know? Okay. And we found this place on First and Blanchard. It's still there. Um, not an artist space. It, of course, Blanchard uh, Belltown has changed. A little bit just, since uh, 1979, 1980. Just, just a little. Just a little bit. Just. We had uh, how many? We had four thousand square feet for three hundred dollars a month. I think is what it was. And we had seven different <laughs> artists that we were. You know that. You know that vacant lot that's kind of up from the Belltown Cafe and on Blanchard Street. There's a vacant lot, and then there's a brick, one of the big old brick hotel buildings. Okay. Uh, you can. We used to be able to look out of our loft window right there down to the the Belltown Tavern. I think was what it was called. Okay. And happy hour started there at six a.m. I think seven a.m. maybe. And we we had a big dance space that we refinished the floor. We had mirrors on the end. We had uh, seven different artists that rented space there, and we all. Uh, I think we were the only ones that really officially lived there, but you know, people, yeah. we were young and Hey, we had some great parties. Um, and we had a little gallery space on the street that huh? that window is still there. The corner where our apartment was, we had a little loft up there looking out, uh, out down to first Avenue. Um, that's where trouble in mind was shot the movie, uh, with, I think Keith Carradine and just some great Seattle shots in the mid eighties, probably is when they shot it after we had okay. closed up, closed up shop and Seattle was dark and rainy and, and uh, very, uh, it was, I mean, it's, it was like the quintessential Seattle, you know, it was, it was a, it was a scene back then. So there was a lot of us young artists and musicians that would go listen to, red dress and kid africa and you know uh so I, yeah, it was I a great gotta, time i gotta interrupt you because the, the thing is is that you know to many people sales music scene was grunge like everyone's like talking that's about way later i, I know like, but, but you know. The, like the late 70s and the early 80s there were some amazing bands oh. in seattle oh yeah and and just they all seemed Oh, they they were just, I mean, heart made it. Let's you know, they're they're you know, they made it out. But 
like the heats, for example. Do you, yeah. do, do you remember the heats? Yeah, or uh, the range hoods. Well, that's the same or, guy. Steve Pearson or, or, was, was in both Is that bands. Steve Pearson? Yeah, and and he used to come over to Ellensburg and play with Frank in the in uh, what Frank was Johnson. There? Frank Johnson, yeah. And, in and British Racing I, Green. British Racing Green. And yeah. I used to play with Frank, and uh, I recorded all kinds of stuff with Frank. I played in a couple bands with Frank. So you know uh, John Newton then as well? I don't really know. Okay, so I, I John name, John but... lives in Cleo, and he's he okay. was he was the drummer in Steve's in that oh, yeah. band. Okay, yeah. all right. So so the point is though is that the Seattle music scene in the in the late seventies and early eighties was so much fun, and it was just a great time, and 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 I'm not taking anything away from the grunge era, just I really liked Seattle's music in the seventies and early to mid eighties. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I did so, too. <laughs> yeah. In fact. I have a framed Heats album right over here that's off off my there camera that that needs yeah. to go on the wall somewhere. I just I just haven't I haven't hung it up yet. Um, anyway, okay. So I still can't believe you had four thousand square feet for you know that even yeah three, even I, I think they raised the rent by fifty bucks at towards the end of the two or three years that we we ran it there. You know, and yeah. uh, it was yeah. super cheap. I uh, I didn't have to work too much. <laughs> um, you know, it it was a very different time. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I had uh probably 1986. I had a house on the water over in West Seattle by the Fauntleroy Ferry. Right. Yeah. And my and my friends thought I was crazy for paying six hundred dollars a month. Yeah. You know, but I was on I was on the water. I mean, it was it was oh, just yeah. yeah, it was just it was great. Um, it was expensive for you know mid eighties dollars, but. Uh, Anyway. And you have probably had to clean out the mildew a little bit on the uh, <laughs> in the closet. No, well, not probably, too bad. I probably should have. How's that? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I probably should have. So, you guys, you guys did this kind of co I'll call it a co-op. You know, artist at, cooperative at, at Blanchard Street. Yeah, yeah it was a yeah. co-op. We just everybody chipped in the rent, and we paid paid the rent, and uh, yeah. we had. Uh, let's see. I think we had six or seven arson fires in the building uh there while we were uh while we were there i remember one <laughs> one time waking up and the whole place was filled with smoke and we all ran outside and they put it out and it was fine we had uh, we had the the bums uh you know sleeping in our back door right along the alleyway off of blanchard uh right there we'd knock on the door say hey stop rattling around in your box um, there wasn't that much street life, not like it is now. Uh, uh, no, no, um, like it is now. But that 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 brings up uh, moving to the studio. Mm -hmm. um, I moved. We moved back to Ellensburg after doing Blanchard Street. We moved up to Capitol Hill, and uh, Ren and I, my wife Ren and I, were going to have our our uh, daughter, and. We went, you know, probably living in the loft on Blanchard and First is probably not the place where we wanted to raise a kid. So like like so many others, you know, uh, you have your family and then you kind of, uh, you know, you want to be a little more stable. So we moved back to Ellensburg, thought that would be a good place to raise a family. And I found... Um, this big old concrete building down by the old train station. And my dad, Alto Albright, made Alto's Easy Mat mat cutting tools. 
Okay. And um, he invented those, and that was the family business. I I'd go help him put them together, but I I really hadn't thought of doing that as a, a career. But we found this building, we bought it for a really great price, and moved all of the manufacturing over there. And then upstairs on that was a burnout shell with bats flying around, and but the floor and the ceiling were or the rafters were there. Right. So it was a blank slate. And I had re done some recording, you know, over the years. I mean, I had a reel-to-reel -reel way back and done some multi-track stuff and thought, well, why don't we just do this ourselves? We can do this. And we, so I come from a, a creative family. It's right. always, it's supportive. It's like, <laughs> if you get an idea, well, what are the tools you need to to explore that and it's fun in the exploration it's like okay. if you like if you are interested in a guitar well get a guitar and start exploring what all the capabilities of that instrument are or a mandolin or or recording you know there or paints or whatever the medium is if you have the tools uh and then you can learn it's just exciting so we designed over a year the the studio up, upstairs um and um uh, a guy who I had recorded with who went to he went to actual recording school it was one of the early recording schools at one of the state schools i think over in Walla Walla maybe or Coleman okay. or something and uh Peter Carl um and he knew the technicality of it so he helped me design all the wiring we had uh mic inputs all around the the room and and you had mentioned heart well mm -hmm. we had had been in you know k smith was in seattle and some of the other studios they were all big and fancy and expensive and those of us you know in our mid-20s really couldn't afford that um and we wanted to be able to record and be in the creative process of doing of, of recording. Right. So uh, we wanted to make a big room. All the, the style of the 70s were small, isolated spaces where to eliminate leakage between, say, the drum set, the loud guitar amps and the bass and all the different parts, mm -hmm. you want to isolate these different things. Well, you know, I wanted to uh, go back to, say, the Beatles model or the, uh, you know, the uh, those guys who they'd play together. You had to play together. You, you wanted, uh, you know, to be visually connected, to be audio connected in the same room. So things bleed a little bit. And so we built a, a nice big room. And luckily the building was a very odd shape. So it was real easy to make um, walls that weren't parallel. We were starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. uh the big room we designed it with different areas that sounded differently and then it was isolated really well from the control room um and it's it still is but you know i'm not gonna be using it that way anymore um but uh so that was we opened in 83 and okay. we built it over about a year and a half before then um and it still works great. It's like the sound lock corridor, the big room, the control room, all work good. Um, all the mic sends are all there, but it's 
now it's kind of, you know, it's a sad part uh, where I'm kind of letting go of that history, but I'm kind of ready, you know, and the technology really has changed. I mean, oh, we, you know, yeah. uh, we recorded everything analog at the beginning, and then we went through the entire transformation from analog into digital i mean we used when when the first mac came out the little black and white one mm -hmm. we did some midi in there and that was like wow that was amazing we could do midi and we could make a keyboard play you know we can move the little yep you know notes around and all of a sudden the keyboard's playing you know and well, that was amazing and we said no nah, we'll never be able to do real audio in there it's never going to be good enough and then, oh, well, then this one, you know, we had uh, the first versions of all that stuff. And then we had ADATs and we had, um, oh, the Sony F1 format we used to master to. Um, and some of the first stuff, you know, it was rough. It didn't sound that good because the resolution wasn't up to, you know, the old analog machines just sound great, you know, and they mm -hmm. still do. Um, but now we've got the digital it sounds just great there's no way you could tell the difference and, and for you know a, a 12 year old kid or whatever somebody with really no money garage band on their on their mac oh it's does, awesome you know, it does, are you kidding you know it's like you could put together you can if you're if you're musically creative you can put together your idea yeah. on a on a laptop that cost, a, I mean, a thousand bucks. I'm not trying to say it's not. It's oh, you could, bucks get a a used, bucks. you could get a yeah. used one for a couple hundred bucks, record yeah. on GarageBand, get a decent mic with one little interface, or this mic I'm I'm talking on here. Yeah. Is it is you just plug it in? It's a USB mic. It, it works yeah. great. Right. I could yeah. record a whole. I you know. Yeah. yeah. It's it's yeah, amazing, it's, in in the forty-ish years of the digital transformation just yeah. how how inexpensive and how powerful and small everything has gotten yeah. i mean i've got i have garage band on my phone i do too in theory yeah. <laughs> i could yeah. in theory if i was musically competent i could use this device and put together a a, a demo so no one of my one of my good friends who was a seattle musician working working musician neil brown or virgil brown okay um he played through that whole the uh some of his friends with pearson and some of those guys and and uh the guys from red dress and and uh he does all his demos on a little ipad and yeah. sends them around and gets people to add parts and they sound great you know there there is limitations with the microphones i mean there's a there's a high-end thing that I'm sure Apple or whoever will figure it out and make it even better on the next version. But um, a good mic, I mean, I, I'm keeping all my old mics and my preamps. I have, okay. you know, those, those key things are, you know, you can't do without a good mic. Um, although you can get a good mic for a lot less than you know, yeah. well, you're, it looks like you're talking on a, a SM7 there. That's a fairly expensive dynamic mic, um, but uh, it it just sounds good. It's got a big fat sound, you know. For for what I'm using it for is probably overkill, um, but you can find these on sale for 350 bucks. Yeah, 
So not like the $3,000 microphones that you, you can see, but I want to, I want to interject something. So you, you mentioned you wanted to make it a big room and, and kind of go away from what those, those, the rooms were like in Seattle. And you, you referenced the Beatles playing together. And have you ever been to Abbey Road, Stu- Abbey Road Studios? No. I'd so, love to love so to go. Do you know a Seattle area musician by the name of Jesse Butterworth? No. So Jesse is a, he's, he's a, an interesting guy and he, he recorded his first solo album at Abbey Road Studios. Yeah. Okay. But I guess Abbey, Abbey Road kind of fell on some hard times for a while. And in anyway, but what he was, when I was talking to him, you literally can go in there and go, I'd like to use the piano <laughs> right. that, that John used for blah, blah, blah. Or I'd like to use the microphone that Frank Sinatra sang. I, you can literally yeah. like from the menu, order these old 50 60 70 year old pieces of equipment and use it and it's just like yeah the old and stuff they're taken care of yeah and it's... the old stuff's still really cool uh, in, oh, in, oh. Versus, yeah anyway Ab- absolutely but so i the question i have so i think i know the answer because you kind of alluded to it you, your family's creative your family's supportive when you whose idea was it you know, you're, you're married, your wife, I don't know anything about your wife. So is she a musician? Is your wife musical uh, at all? She is pretty musical, but she, she, uh, doesn't play. You okay. Know. So when you said, you know, I think I want to re- make a recording studio. How'd that go? How was that conversation? <laughs> How was that conversation? How'd that conversation well, now, go for you? <laughs> now we're getting into a long conversation, you know, cause making a, making an independent recording studio is it's a big pit that you throw, you know, your extra change. So is, into, it, is it like a boat? You know, basically it's a, it's a boat. <laughs> it's a big boat, you know? Okay. Yeah. And, and you want to have your boat nice and shiny and, and, you know, and put really cool, uh, you know, gunnels on your boat, you know, I need so a new it's depth kind of, you know, meter. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's like fishing or something. I don't know. It's, it's, uh, but, but you're after that, creative moment with multiple people. I mean, that's the difference, say, with painting and which is kind of a solo thing mm-hmm. and recording with people, you know, or or playing live with people. You know, there's moments when the the hairs on the back of your neck, they stand up and you just go, okay, that's it right there. That was that was it. Uh-huh. And and we're all you know, we're looking for that switch that you could turn on to make that happen, but there is no switch. It's a, it's a combination of many, many things. And, and, um, yeah, have it, uh, building the studio, uh, we used it for, you know, all, all kinds of different things. Um, at the end, I was kind of breaking even if I didn't pay myself anything. Um, but, I had a really good solid business that we ran. So, you know, we had our day jobs. I mean, I'd go across the country uh, and demonstrate mat cutting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had a quilting tool for quilters that would cut fabric really accurately. And <laughs> we'd go, uh, I mean, I we had a booth at the Puyallup Fair for like 25 years. I mean, uh, you know. That's where I saw you. Yeah, we. <laughs> my mom probably uh, has, we, my mom probably has your equipment. 
Seriously. Yeah, I, it, we, seriously. There's people oh. all over the world that have the equipment. Oh. It, the the mat cutters uh, work great. Uh, we were in the art materials industry for 40 years yeah. and would go to New York and Houston and all over the country demonstrating our tools and selling them to Dick Blick and, you know, artists and you know, just all the stores. And then we'd sell them direct at the shows. So, mm -hmm. um, but that made us the money. And then uh, I had really good engineers. Well, just basically two other engineers that uh, would run the sessions mostly. And uh, Steve Fisk, who is still going strong and, and a really good friend. Um, he came after Peter Carl and Peter has uh Carl, Peter Carl recording, I think in Brooklyn. And okay. he's, he's really into vintage microphones and uh, does great jazz recordings in New York, you know? So, um, so how Peter's did these guys, how did you meet these guys? Were they in Ellensburg or how did you get them to? And, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Ellensburg's a vortex. I agree. But if, if you're not, if you haven't been exposed to it, it might be a hard sell. So how'd you, how'd you meet these guys? Well, Ellensburg is a, it's a college town, you know, it's yeah. a farming cowboy, uh, horsey and yep. college town. So it's that mix. And so a lot of us come back because it is that mix and it's very art artistic too. There's a mm -hmm. lot of, um, and at various wow. times in its history, it has has had a lot of music come through it too. So mm -hmm. it'll, uh, you can come here and woodshed and learn your craft and play down at the local place and, uh, you know, go. So Steve, so Steve, um, was was a student here at the music department at Central Washington University in this was the mid seventies, and okay. I was in the art department mostly, a little bit in the music, but not. Uh, not so much. And uh, we we were kind of the uh, college hippies uh, doing dance performances with synthesizers and multiple guitars stacked up on things. And, you know, this was a this was way before grunge or anything like or punk. This was before mm -hmm. way before punk. And we did soundtracks for our entourage of of dancers and um so we were the musicians and and uh, my wife was one of the dancers you know okay so uh that's kind of and then steve went to olympia and was part of the uh uh scene down there the evergreen scene and learned synthesizer stuff um down there and played with all kinds of people and then when peter carl wanted to move back uh, East, he was done with Ellensburg. I don't think he's ever been back. <laughs> he didn't get in the vortex. Okay. But Steve, uh, I called up Steve and I said, uh, Hey, I need an engineer. And Steve was finishing up something down there. And so Steve, uh, came back over to Ellensburg and was my engineer for, I don't know how many years. Um, okay. and we did, uh, all kinds of stuff from Pacific pipe, ads and chevy ads to uh the screaming trees and moral crux and uh steve um remixed a sound garden thing uh there and uh you know just all kinds of things so how many how many different 
acts do you think recorded in in the studio over the years? Oh, I can't even imagine. Um, I just, in fact, because I'm I'm closing up shop, right? right. I, I really am. I had to go through and pull. I'm still pulling out all of the multi-track tapes, the master tapes, the different formats that we had. I mean, we recorded <laughs> on, you know, SVHS, uh, hi-fi digital before it turned into blah, blah, blah. And I got the, the, the beta masters that were on beta. And I hope I can get the beta machine to play through the F1 format. So there's a lot of masters on those formats that I hope can play. Um, what, where were we going with that one? How many, how many, <laughs> oh, how, how many, how, oh, yeah. how many? Okay. Well, I stopped at about 50 that I had, that I had written down that were, okay. that were bigger projects. I mean, they weren't all albums or they weren't all CDs. A lot of them were cassettes at mm -hmm. the time we did, we did cassette duplication. I mean, okay. we did Shonen Knife. Oh, I forgot to write that one down. Uh, Shon uh, you probably don't know who Shonen Knife is, but but they were kind of a Japanese girl punk band from Japan. And we ended up duping their cassettes. You know, I don't know how that happened. But uh, Calvin Johnson from Olympia, we we duped a lot of K cassettes for for Calvin. And okay. um, we'd stack up like 10, 10 cassette decks and you'd get them all in pause. So you, you load them all. And then you get the master going and it's all just in pause at the right place. And then you get your fingers lined up on those <laughs> triggers. So you can, you can hit about five with each hand and then, then you, you hit them and then the go, and then you watch. So, so the leader goes by, right? This is, this is analog baby. Yeah. So the leader goes by and then you hit the go on the master and you make sure all the meters are going and then you there you run a side of a cassette and then you once those are done click 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 you can hear them and then you turn them over and do the other side oh my gosh yeah what it were was, you guys using for cassette decks for this project oh uh i have uh probably the best one we had was a nakamichi then we had sony's uh I, most of them were Sony's, I think. Okay. They were Sony's. And I've still got about five of them left that I've <laughs> I just pulled one out that I'm that's a kind of a nice Sony. And uh I was cleaning the heads the other day because I've got a there's all these we, we used to carry around Walkmans, right? And we mm -hmm. put ideas on them. So right. you know, guitar ideas, song ideas, any kind so musician now it's all on my phone right i've got uh, i've got you know a thousand song ideas on my phone and i need to go through those and you know and <laughs> and make the next big hit record right so uh i've got to go through a, a box and boxes of cassettes so um i hope they play uh but the ma the masters we have to treat a little differently right mm -hmm. those over 30 40 years can uh, I mean, are we getting into the weeds here? Is anybody going to be interested in this? You know what? This is my show and I'm interested, so <laughs> I don't care. Because I'll great. go all the way down the rabbit yeah, hole. Go, want, just keep you know? going. I'll, I'll okay. reel you in, but okay, keep going. Okay, just reel me in because, uh, you know, I, I, I do like to be in enthusiasm, not <laughs> necessarily in a rush. Right. Okay, so be in enthusiasm, whatever you're doing, you know. Be in that enthusiastic mode, you know? So uh, anyway, back to like master tapes. Um, 
they, they they're hydroscopic. Um, the so there's there's the oxide that the recording is done on, and those mm -hmm. little oxide particles get magnetized, and that's where the information for an analog recording is. Okay, and you play that back, and magically it turns into whatever you put on there. And over the over time, they uh, collect a little water and absorb, and then they become weaker. the The connection for those oxides is not so good anymore. Okay. And if you run them on your, say, a multi track, you put a you know a two inch multi track or a half inch multi track or inch or whatever on the machine, that oxide comes off and like deposits right on the heads or on the pinch roller or on the capstans and and the tape just locks up and you just you know you got to clean the thing and start from scratch right. so we bake the tapes is what we call it okay and that's really you're not really baking them but you're dehydrating them so um at the big places in LA and New York they'd have some scientific uh, you know dehydrator that would be all fancy um, well, a lot of us on the DIY side of things go down to the local Fred Meyer and get a, you know, a little dehydrator and you stick the tapes in there and then you have to see how long it takes to dehydrate them. And then you get your first play off of them and you're all set up to transfer it into the computer. So on that first play, I want to make sure it's nice and clean. Everything's good. Right transfer it in in you know because i might not get another play if it starts coming off there goes the song <laughs> you know it's like the information is now deposited on the heads of the machine so anyway it's kind of a interesting process and That's i'm, I'm like, maybe I i'm need new to do at that. it i'm okay maybe i need yeah. to maybe i need to talk to you offline about this and so i can get all my grateful dead shows off of tape and onto there you <laughs> go yeah all my dead yeah. tapes yeah. oh my gosh well, okay so you're using it like a, a like a home dehydration dehydrator. <laughs> yeah, don't don't quote me on this. Yeah, no, no, no. It's I, like, well, yeah, we're 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 among, amongst friends here, no, right? No, no, so this, but yeah. you, I gotta. I, here's where my mind went. You said, "Well, we bake the tapes." I'm thinking he's got like an easy bake oven and yeah. puts them underneath a light bulb or something. I don't yeah, know. Anyway, it's, just, it's just about like that. Yeah, that's like, that's okay. kind of it, you know. And hopefully they don't melt, you know. Right. So there's so, a specific temperature, and you got to leave them for a certain amount of time, and all that kind of so stuff. It's, yeah. Okay. It, yeah, okay. And. And so I'm experimenting with with some you know stuff that I don't care about, and then okay. then as uh, I get everything out of the studio and kind of get it at home or mm -hmm. basically out in my studio at home, right? Um, I will uh, start officially transferring some of that material, and not not everything. I mean, most of that most of the stuff you know nobody's going to care about, and um, I'll send. Uh, if anybody's out there listening and they think they have any tapes at Velvetone, um, let me know because uh, I'll send them to you and uh, you can deal with them. There no. might be, actually, there might be a couple of people there who listen be, to this yeah. that, that might, you might be getting a call. Um, and they sound great. I mean, I've only done it for, with a few, you know, right. just just so, some, and they just sound just like the day we made them. I mean, they are just pristine analog. They're big and fat and they just sound really good. You know, they okay. just sound really good. So I want to ask you a question. I mean, there, there's a lot of like with 50 plus acts that gone through there, but maybe for the casual listener to this show, the, the, the biggest name, and, and if I'm, if, if you disagree with me, 
please, please share your opinion. But the screaming trees probably are the most well known to the masses. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's no doubt. There's no doubt so, about that. Yeah. I would like you to, were you, what did you think of them when they, when they showed up and they started, because they were young Ellensburg kids, right? Oh yeah. And oh yeah. So what was your thoughts when you, when you saw them for the first time? Well, we, we knew them through, uh, the video store, which mm-hmm. Van and, and uh, Lee's folks uh, ran, and w- yep. that was when we used to go up and, you know, they were they were our local video store. So we we knew them as younger kids in the back room, and it's like, what are those guys doing? And they <laughs> asked us, said, well, can I come? We come down and record uh, a cassette or record some stuff, and we were going, yeah, just like anybody else. And Steve was the engineer then, and. They, I can't remember the exact uh, uh, time frame of when exactly, which, you know, we'd have to recreate that. And I'm sure we probably will someday, but, <laughs> um, you know, it was a long time ago and mm-hmm. uh, they were recording and Steve and I kind of looked at each other and we were just going, man, these guys are really good. I just, I, they are good. Uh-huh. It's different. It's melodic. And then, um, Lee is just going nuts on the guitar and it's just like, it's just cool. And then Lanigan starts singing and it's just like, wow, that's, that guy's a good singer, you know? And so we, (laughs) after, you know, they had done a couple of projects and um, you know, which were cassettes, even if, and especially when, and uh, I forget exactly, you know, which ones um, happened, but then we went to them and said, you know, can we put out, Let's put out a record. Let's make a record. Right. Um, and it was a group project. I mean, it's their songs, it's their material, but I put up the studio time. Eh? Uh their folks put up uh half the money for doing the record. I um Steve was the engineer uh uh-huh. the whole time. And uh, you know, they were young and and not difficult to deal with, but uh, but you know, it was an intense, uh, project. Okay. All um, right. uh, and Pickerel was on drums and just like rock and the drums and really good. And he was, God, I don't know how old Mark was at that time, but he was young. Um, and we got that record done and mastered and I, well, for mastering it, we were going to do the record. Um, I had the master tapes uh under my arm and i mean this is a story i've told before but i flew to la to get it because you're making records it was a little different than mastering now mm-hmm. mastering now a lot of us can do it ourselves yeah there's there's serious mastering engineers that you know hands down they're probably better than anything i could ever do but we've got the software now that we can get pretty darn close. We can get okay. it really good. We can certainly sequence everything, get all the crossfades at the ends of each songs and get them all evened out and make them nice and loud. Um, there, I'm sure there's all kinds of tricks that, that the other guys know. Um, but at that time we were making records. So you had to do certain things to get it in the groove. Okay. Like, it was it was sub to mono on the bass be- below like three or four hundred hertz. I don't know if that means anything to anybody, but uh, the bass is 
was sub to mono. So in that groove of a record, you've got a right side, which was a stereo right and a stereo left, these two channels of the mm -hmm. sides of the groove. And if they're moving separately, they can bounce that needle right out of there. And so you can't get the record loud enough um, without making the bass just move together. So the needle is bouncing in that groove up and down okay. uh, symmetrically. And then on the high end, so the the real mastering engineers to make records, they had they had some very specific parts and they had some really serious, cool gear, big old compressors and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I went to LA to John Golden mastering on Sunset Boulevard and took the tapes in there. And that okay, so you were you were mentioning oh those mics that you can get at Abbey Roads, right? Yeah. Well that was that was I was just thinking of that that at John Gold at uh Golden Mastering, I think is what it was called. That John John Golden was the mastering engineer. Um the day before I came in there with this psychedelic rock right. thing from an eight-track in Ellensburg, Washington. Right. Uh he was doing Frank Sinatra. He was remixing or remastering Frank Sinatra the day before and the monkeys. He was remastering the monkeys stuff from the, you know, for somebody, I don't know, you know, he's in LA. So it's like, who knows what project. And then we throw on the screaming trees tapes right after he'd been working on those. So that was kind of, and he mentioned it. He said, wow, this is kind of interesting. I was working on the monkeys yesterday. Oh, and Frank Sinatra too, you know, by the way. You and, know. And, and and now and now I've got these young kids from yeah. where? Where, where are you from? And I was like, oh no, this sound, and, and I remember him saying, No, this sounds good. That's <laughs> and it was just on his big speakers, you know, in this mastering suite. Uh, you know, it's just like, yeah, that sounds like it's supposed that's that's what we mixed. It does it didn't change. Okay. And uh so I was pretty satisfied with Okay, yeah, that's what we mixed. Those were the decisions we made on on the overall sound. He EQ'd a couple of things. He, you know, there was a couple songs that in the mastering process you even things out because it's really hard in the mixing process to get everything perfectly consistent. So you might, on his first pass of listening to it, he would um, like make a note and go up one dB down tube dbs you know on mm -hmm. this song that song to get them evened out okay um it's a it's a little easier now because back then it was analog we were we were running the board with our fingers we had no automation or anything we had like three guys on a small board and okay here comes the second verse remember that snare drum is too loud on the third beat get it you know turn down the fader Ooh, oh i missed it you know and it's just like and then you gotta start over again you know, so uh, it was it was very much playing it more than we do now. So um, two questions, and they're both regarding time. So first question, to record the, the Screaming Trees, this project, how how long did that take? Oh, I don't, I can't even remotely remember. Because I would, I would, uh, you know, it'd be a matter of, of, of days or weeks i mean it wasn't it wasn't so they know, just didn't go in play one one take and walk out the door i mean so they you oh worked, no no right but no they also they'd, they'd worked they'd worked hard you know it's like you know you come in and and then after a few hours you know you can only work so long and mm -hmm. different people are different i mean some people they can just work 
all day diligently, you know, take, do four hours to go take a break, do another four hours, take a break, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and maybe you get the best thing at the end, or maybe you get the best thing at the beginning. It's, right. um, but, and that's part of the producer's job to kind of know the personalities of the people and, uh, keep everybody happy, make sure you don't, uh, you know, don't give the bass player any beer before four o'clock or whatever <laughs> that, you know, it's like there, you got to, you know, you have to deal with everybody and keep it rolling because it's not a good place to practice. I mean, the studio is not the place to practice. That's an old saying, but it's true, you know, um, or if you've got an unlimited budget, hey, go for it, you know, okay. uh, but most most people at the level that we were at, you know, you're you're just yeah you don't have an unlimited budget right. you know it's um you're you're getting by the hour and we're just we're barely you know paying right. ourselves by the hour and uh so, if it starts to fall apart then it's time to stop you know so part two of that question then was when you took it down to la to be mastered how long did that process take oh that's like a couple hours that you fast mean, Wow. Oh yeah. Okay. I mean, he's a total pro. He comes in, he goes, listens to it through once, both sides, makes his notes, dit, 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 dit. um, you know, and then and then uh um yeah, I was probably there, I don't know. I he, he just said go away, come back in an hour. And <laughs> I went and had some lunch and came back and then he then he I, I hung around while he was burning the lacquer, you know, he's cutting the lacquer. So so he makes his notes on a pass, make sure everything's uh, fine. And mm-hmm. then uh, you pass one side and that's 20 minutes or whatever it is, 18 to 22 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you do another piece of lacquer and you do the other side and there you are. There you are. <laughs> that's all you, that's all you uh, get. <laughs> okay. all and right. then you send it off to get a test pressing done. Okay. Yeah. And the test pressings were, they were always exciting. I mean, we'd be waiting for it, you know, because that's the first time you're, um, you really hear it on the record and it does change. It It isn't, mm-hmm. you know, the record definitely sounds different than your master tape. The, ma- the master tape sounds kind of what we have now um, in the digital domain. I mean, what, that's what a, a good master sounds like is, is what we have now in, um, okay digitally i think in in and i know it's not just me who would think that but you put on a really good analog master and you put it right next to something that you ran through the digital system and they they sound very very similar so you've got to then adjust things to whatever the format is like if you know uh for the maximum volume uh type whether you're making a a master that you're going to send to a mastering engineer Mm -hmm. your overall levels are going to be different than if you're sending it to duplicate uh, on a cd or if you're sending it to soundcloud or you know they each have a kind of a little different overall level but you want them to sound good at whatever level and then uh the mastering engineer or will pull it up or the system um, like if it's on, um, you know, Apple Music or uh, you know something like that, um, Pandora, they all have their own algorithms that 
do stuff, you know, that mm -hmm. we, us peons cannot know, you know? And right. so you just give them your best shot. And the, the things that I've done that I, um, you know, they've, they've always come up and sound, sounded good when they come through, okay. uh, the system. Are we segueing some someplace yeah, we're else? Gonna, we're going to shift. We're going to shift gears away from the studio for a second, but we're going to stay in the music genre. So, when when I talked to you on the phone for the first time, you know, we do these. I I was on your website and I was I looked at uh, your mandolins, which you had right, you informed yeah. me then that you're you're not making mandolins anymore. I think I know the answer because you kind of just said, "Well, you know, we just." we get the, we, if we're going to do something, we get excited. We're going to go get what we need. We're going to go. What got you into making instruments? Well, let's see. I was just looking up some old thing and I think I made my first electric guitar when I was 13. Really? Uh, yeah. And, okay. and I made a bass back then. And I've always played with all kinds of different instruments and, the thing that got me into mandolins was I wanted a a mandolin. I started well. I've I've always played acoustic stuff, mm -hmm. but I got very much into just electric. You know, walls of sound and feedback and uh, prog rock kind of level of playing, and okay. that that was really interesting because it was uh exciting and difficult and all of that and then okay. uh uh yeah and then th then i just really burn out on electric it was loud and it's like the gigs never went the way i wanted them to and i couldn't play what i wanted and the people weren't you know anyway um you know it just i just burned out on it and i sold my guitar amp and i just went i'm forget this electric stuff i'm gonna play acoustic instruments these are you can do everything with an acoustic guitar. That's I've got a great acoustic guitar. I can write things with it. I can it, the whole orchestra is in an mm -hmm. acoustic guitar. It's just an amazing thing. And then I kind of discovered that there was all these other people <laughs> that all these years had been playing acoustic music. So I discovered like the folk dance groups and bluegrass. And I had old friends that said, um, you know, tried to get me to listen to David Grisman and all those amazing players back in the day. And I kind of went, no, no, I'm into electric stuff, you know? And now <laughs> of course I go, wow, I was really missing out. I could have been like learning that stuff over all those years. Um, but I started uh, listening to things and I was going, man, a mandolin is like really portable. Mm -hmm. I can just throw that sucker right over my shoulder. And so I went on eBay and bought a really horrible mandolin and had to tweak it up a little bit and make it, you know, make it play right. And it was okay. And then I went down to um, Lark in the morning music camp and hung out with great mandolin players down there. And they all said, Hey, you're pretty good. You know, it's like, why don't you come down to um, mandolin symposium with Mike Marshall and David Grisman and Chris Thiele and, all these, you know, the best in the whole world will show up, you know? And so I went down there and I, I was going, wow, these really nice mandolins are nice. I bet you I could make one of those. You know? <laughs> well, of course, you know, I have to put my foot right in it, you know? And right. so I started 
uh, talking to the other builders and get getting I mean I had woods and I have 50 some years of working with wood. I mean I have right. a I have a degree in sculpture and I've built wood okay. You know, fine crafted wood things. So I wasn't afraid of of making an instrument, but uh, instruments are kind of like the the holy grail of woodworking uh, in my way of looking at it it's because it you're making uh an instrument that you're supposed to make music with you're supposed it's it, it has to do that it has to make good music or else it's not worth anything right and it has to look really cool mm -hmm. and it has to feel cool in your hand right you've got to get the neck just right and everything has to work and so i started researching mandolins and then made a few i made like three or four and took those down to music symposium and, or a mandolin symposium and got a bunch of feedback from some of the, the uh, great builders and, and from Mike Marshall and uh, got some, you know, feedback on, well, what do I need to make better? And, and I could, I could play that instrument next to say Mike Marshall's 1923 Lloyd lore, you know, it's like, wow, that, you know, that's like the Holy grail of, great instruments right and um so i i started making them and then uh you know set up uh my shop to be really um uh you know designed around making you know mandolins and so for a few years um i mean i didn't really make that many you know i mean i kind of was full bore into it but i only made like 15 you know okay uh and you know, I never crossed the the twenty threshold, and then the next next threshold is like fifty. Once you get past that, and then I, uh, um, you know, you get past in the hundreds, then you're really a builder. But um, okay. uh, yeah, my hands started wearing out, and uh, you're not getting rich anytime soon making uh, you know, handmade instruments that, you know, you're making like ten dollars an hour at the, you know, with the amount of time. It's probably three hundred hours into one of those it, mandolins. Is it really that and, long? Is it really 300? I mean, I'm not, well, it's not that I don't believe you. It's like, you know. No, it's, I, it's I like, did wow. figure that. I did figure that easily 300. Uh, wow. For, but, but that's really different than a factory, right? So a, mm -hmm. a factory is all set up. You've got multiple people that are doing different things. And right. even though they are all these instruments, whether you think they're you know, made they're they're handmade. I mean, there people have to put them together, whether they're in China mm -hmm. or 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 wherever they're made. Ellensburg, they're Ellensburg. There's people putting them together, um, and uh, now, how you can get amazing instruments for, you know, not very much money, which is sad for the the solo builders, you know, but um. Yeah. Anyway, so I uh, uh I made made some some mandolins. I sold most of them. I've just got a got a few left. A couple. I've got the one I I play all the time, and mm -hmm. I've got another redwood top one that it was came from these planks that uh one of my woodworker friends uh gave me from Northern California. This beautiful redwood, just just perfect grain and. I made two matching instruments from that, and one of them is just my favorite sculpture piece as a okay. as a piece. So I really, you know, you pick the 
wood for the back, you pick the woods for the sides and the top, and you put it all together and and hopefully it will make some music. So oh, is that an alarm? We've already gone an hour. Oh my goodness. No, we didn't even get no, I don't know what that was. That's why it was such a shocked look on my face. It What's said, that? It said theater mode. I'm like, uh, theater mode. Oh, I wow. have no idea. So, sorry. No, that's that's okay. Yeah, that hijacked uh, that. So, so yeah. Well, so I I kind of got uh, back into acoustic music and played mandolins and and uh, loved uh, you know learning uh, some of that world and I think I'll stick with that and on coming projects uh but adding back in some of the electric sounds that um are a lot of fun to play with too so um well you you've mentioned you 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 have or you're in the process of pulling all the equipment out of the studio yeah and and kind of cataloging it maybe is the right way and you're looking at the tapes yeah and, yeah, and yeah. cataloging the projects so I'm I'm going to make an assumption that you're not going to keep all that equipment. You're going to rehome it, if you will, to various people that might find it valuable. Yeah, it's about half of it, probably. I mean, some of it I just bring home, and I'm just going to use. I mean, I'm not going to get rid of my mics. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, I got my mic stands. I I need some of those to put the mics on. So right, right. Uh, but there but, is there is like the big studio speakers, you know the the JBL forty four thirties that are weigh about a hundred pounds a piece, and they're fifteens with a horn, and they sound awesome. But oh, now now my phone's starting to go off. So um, but um, uh, yeah. So that so, some of the stuff I'm definitely getting rid of. I just kind of made a decision on a couple of the guitar amps that I had. I don't need all those guitar amps. Um, uh, some of the rack gear, uh, you know, a lot of it, the technology really has changed, you know? So I know there's a lot of people back into the old analog gear, but, um, I will set up what I need and then I'll just use that. So, okay. so I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling through here and, you know, you, you've had, I mean, there's a bunch of names that are in here that are local of local names, you know, people that I know, uh, like, like Frank Johnson, Mark Pickerel, uh, Gary Williams. Yeah. Gary was, he, Gary was, uh, just the most amazing drummer. I mean, yeah. yeah <laughs> when, yes, he was. I, here, here's a Gary Williams story. I, if those who don't know Gary, Gary was a jazz, amazing jazz drummer, but he could do any kind of, I mean, and, one yeah. time we had a session that uh it just wasn't feeling right you know and we really didn't want a whole kit on there and gary's one of those ones who could do like different rhythms with every limb you know going at the same time and and uh but we needed a hi-hat part we just needed a just a hi-hat part and that was gary could just laid that down and it made everything absolutely work and it and it it wasn't like you could turn on a sample or hit a hit a keyboard and make a a, a hi hat sound kind of like it was in the right place. No, you had to play with this recording, and mm -hmm. it wasn't done to a click. So there was some 
you know, there was some uh, movement to the speed. So, okay. but Gary just made it all work. And he could, he could do that from the simplest part, just this hi-hat part, all the way to full on super complex, uh, big kit stuff. So yeah, he was, um, he was phenomenal. Um, yeah, he was phenomenal. I, I didn't know him all that well. Um, Many of my friends that I know better knew him very well. My friends that were in into music in the Ellensburg, in Seattle yeah. scene in during the the eighties there, you know. But <clears throat> Gary was, um, yeah, he was he was he was a talent, uh, an amazing amazing talent. And then you know, I just think it's see what I think is so cool about the studio, you know, because once again, it's it's Ellensburg, and if it, I don't know what number episode this is going to be. <laughs> right. It's going to be somewhere north of 245 but not 250. So so cuz we our, our 250th episode is going to be our third third year anniversary. So I've had, you know, 250 conversations, let's just say that. And I think Ellensburg's been referenced more than any other town in Washington state. For Isn't that crazy? That's just yeah. crazy. Because I've had, I've had conversations, like I said, with, with Mark Pickerel, uh, Nick Zentner, the geology professor there at Central, yeah, yeah. um, Nicole, Nicole Klaus, who's, um, uh, she's works for the city of Ellensburg now as their communications director, uh, Mike Wansley, because he was my college roommate there at Central, and so I've had him on most. It's just, it's just Ellensburg's just this interesting. Even though I don't, I when we decided to move from the Tacoma area over, we were going to move. I was, I was burned out, and uh, my wife and I were debating where to go, and I was, I was campaigning hard for Ellensburg, and. Too much wind. That's why we didn't go. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get. True. But nobody bothered to tell us that Wenatchee's really windy too. So I, I feel <laughs> right. in. And I, 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 I really love living in Wenatchee. Don't get me wrong, but I kind of feel like you know what we could have done Ellensburg, and I just. It's, it's a different. Great... We haven't we haven't grown the way Wenatchee has. I mean, yeah. Wenatchee has just exploded. Yeah. We we may be in that phase right now, and a lot of us are kind of begrudging it because we've always had our our little thing you know and well you're putting uh, 1100 houses down off the freeway yeah, yeah there and there's probably another three or four of those things going in and there's just right. a, there is a lot more people here and i you know i'm not you know it is it i don't know <laughs> things things change things change, things change so right what i what i'm going to propose we do is that we i'm going to ask I, i'd like to talk to you about one more topic on this episode but I, if you're willing i'd like to have you come back and talk more about your your painting and, and sculpture and art separately give it oh give i'd it love more to time. do that yeah okay yeah so here's here's my here's the last question for today and it's it's ellensburg music related what are your memories if any of the ranch oh yeah Ah, uh, muddy waters sitting up there, just like playing in the ranch of just, I mean, I was young when, you know, but, um, the dance floor full of boots stomping and beer spilled and table dancing. And it was a wild time at the ranch. Yeah. People, people partied, uh, yeah. back then. And, um, 
all kinds of different people. Uh, who was that Jimi Hendrix impersonator that I saw at the ranch that was crazy? Is it Randy good. Hansen? Yeah, Randy Hansen at the ranch. Uh huh. Um, Junior Cadillac at the ranch. Junior Cadillac uh, came through a lot. Lot. Um, Muddy Waters is just one of those weird ones, though. Yeah. Um, wasn't Ch didn't this is before I, I, my didn't Chuck Berry play there? I, and that's what I was just gonna say. I yeah. think I think I saw Chuck Berry at the ranch. Yeah, that was before my um, time, but but he you know that was the later era of Chuck Berry. Yes, but yes, but, but it was still and it was local musicians who he just have you know he just uh, probably Frank was playing bass. You know I don't remember who you know, but it was local guys who he just pick up the pickup band and mm -hmm. and he just go go. You know, and he'd start doing it, and everybody was just had to be on board. You know, I, it was, I, I've it heard was I've heard some people tell me that that had played with him. That you know, that's basically what he'd do. He'd come into town and and basically, you know, they'd you know, if you had the right instrument in your hand, he'd grab you. Yeah, and he expected you to know his music. Yeah. Oh, like, absolutely. And yeah. if you didn't, he was not a nice man. No. Yeah. He yeah. Was not, it was he like was, you had to. You had to be on board and jump on the bus and here we go yeah yeah so no i uh the other thing is is what when i was at central and they were bringing in you know national acts to entertain college students i i always thought it was interesting that what central was bringing through in the early 80s uh for concerts there and um yeah i don't have a lot of really fond fond memories of those those shows because they were yeah you could always tell so remember the well the holiday inn you know down oh yeah okay sure. so uh when i was in college i um i worked there as a as a catering guy and a bellboy and all this stuff and so i had to i was serving i was a waiter that night and uh when huey lewis and the news were playing at central i i was their waiter for dinner and, and uh and then one night, uh, Sammy Hagar was playing at Central, and I was his bellboy, and had to carry his <laughs> had to carry his bags into his room for him. And uh, you know, it's just, and I I don't have anything kind to say, so I'll just be quiet about that one. That was that was not a pleasant experience well, for me. <laughs> well, Ellensburg was part of the odd route, you know. Yeah. I mean, they'd set up these tours and. And this was along I-90 and yeah. 97 goes north and south and 90 goes to Boston. And so yep. maybe maybe the next night would be in Spokane or right. wherever. Yeah. And so Seattle and then Ellensburg is an, another yeah. night and away yeah. you go, hop on the bus. And so we had all kinds of people through here, you know, mm -hmm. that. Um, well, and it had such a really, and it still, it still does, but it had such a great jazz community there too, that there was a lot yeah. of, a lot of really talented jazz musicians that would play there and uh no well, that was through through the university through i mean the there university. was there was there was always uh quite a department at yeah. the university and then they built uh, a new big building and but there was uh yeah there was a lot of a lot of great i always came i always felt like ellensburg punched above its weight in the music arena like yeah, for a town I, I, I think so yeah yeah I, I you know I always thought it was a a great town. We had we had so many guitar players <laughs> that came through here, um, and and I don't know either stayed here or moved on. Most of them, but mm -hmm. but uh, you know, 
there there was local bands and then there was like the Nash band and uh Lucky Pierre and Oh my gosh, uh, yeah. Uh all, and then like guys like Orville Johnson who's in Seattle uh teach amazing amazing uh oh just player and and knowledgeable about all kinds of music genres um uh he came through for a while and played with uh oh i forget in seattle another friend but anyway yeah the ellensburg is and we're only like an hour and a half from the airport you know it's it, we're not that far from seattle so we can we can run over and we're and we're back over the pass you know an hour and a half it's just like you're living in tacoma trying to get to the airport exactly <laughs> right right well, well i'd love i'd love next time if if we can uh hit on the visual side because let's, there's, let's do there's that. a lot of history in washington okay of of that and and my family and and uh definitely some of that history would be uh a, a whole different story that you know would would really be a kind of a fun time so, thing to talk about so I normally have a couple of questions I ask guests. I'm going to save one of them for the second episode because I won't ask you twice. So I'm going to, we're going to, two things. One, musically related, what didn't I ask you that I should have? Oh, I don't, yeah, I have, I don't know. It's okay. like, what, oh, what were, what were my latest projects that yeah. completed? Okay. okay. So, and these, I, I've never been good at promotion. I mean, okay. we wanted, we were in, into, the creative side we wanted to create mm -hmm. work with people get that hair standing up on the back of our necks when when the magic happens that's what we were into and so a lot of projects that are really good just you know most of them got lost in the in the shuffle but i did three albums with my local band better day okay. which they're poppy country bluegrass uh, acoustic um and they're just great we just got you know they're full of songs that are just awesome okay. uh and then i did a solo album called space flower that uh i i want to remaster and just get it up on soundcloud or something but i was listening to that the other day and i was going wow how did i do that that is that is cool <laughs> that sounds really good you know so I'd love to, you know, get from a musical standpoint, I'd just love to get some of my own stuff okay. out there um, that just kind of got lost because I was doing other things. So, all right. So where can people find, where can people find you online? Like if someone well, at, wants to look you up right now, where's a good place? At, my website is, is samalbright.com. And it couldn't be more simple if they know my name, samalbright.com. And my uh, the email that I use for music musical related. Should I put an email on here? Yeah, you um, can. Um, Please, if you're Sam, with that. Sam at samalbright.com. <laughs> you know? Wow. So it couldn't, and I do have a, a um, I'm, I'm trying to get away from the Velvetone thing. So okay. uh, I'm not using that uh, okay. email so we, or we'll that website link, anymore. We'll put a link to your website on, on the show notes for this yeah. page. Yeah. All right. So here's our last question for today. And then I'm going to spare you. And the next time we're going to talk visual arts. You ready? Very important. I'm ready. Uh-oh. Cake or pie and why? Oh, that's just a no-brainer. Pie. Pie. Got to have pie for breakfast. That's one of my songs on one of the Better Day albums. 
pie for breakfast. Yeah, and my mom made the absolute best apple pie. And my grandmother in Minnesota worked at this cafe and people would come from county wide all they drive all the way to get my grandma's pie. So I'm saying pie is absolutely the answer. All right. Well, you will you'll have to wait for the other questions for the next episode. Sam, <laughs> thank you so much. This was a lot of fun for me. I I I wish you, you know, all the best and then next time we talk, you know, it'll be it'll be fun to talk about the visual side. Awesome. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can reach me on Twitter at Explore State. I'd love to hear your comments. You can also visit our website at explorewashingtonstate.com. If you know anyone who would like the show, it'd be amazing if you'd share the show with them. This is the biggest way that we grow this show. Good old word of mouth. Glad you were here with me today, and I hope to have you listening to the next episode. See you then.